Father, as we come before you today, we come with hearts that are very amazed and grateful. Jesus, for your sacrifice. We thank you that on this day we can proclaim you the risen King. Thank you that on this day we can remember glorious truth which truly and forever changes us. So Lord, on this day we come with uh, perhaps from different places with different hopes and purposes. And Lord, I pray today that the glory of your cross work and the power of your resurrection would be seen as hope for someone today who is hopeless. Seen as forgiveness for someone who feels trapped in their sin. Hope emerging as Christ is risen. So Jesus, this morning our desire is to exalt you so that we will see you rightly, King, Savior, Lord. Glorify yourself in everything we do today. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. And as you do that, I'd like you to uh, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Luke's gospel begins by telling us his purposes in recording the life of Christ. Here's what he says. He says, these things are written so that you might know the certainty of the things that you have been taught, namely the true story of Jesus. So look at the beginning of his gospel, sets out to say, I am writing this for a purpose. Later in the gospel of John, it will say this. These are written, now what it says, let me just give you the, it leads up saying, uh, Jesus did many amazing things, but these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So as you work your way through the text that we look at this morning, the aim of it is not to make you more thoughtful or intelligent concerning Christ. The aim is to change your life, to move your heart from where it is to where God wants it to be. Luke aims mainly not to tell us what Jesus did, but why he did it. Aims not to tell us that Jesus died, but why he died. And so as we work our way through the text, I want you to be thinking with eyes that say, God, how do you want me to respond to the truth that I'm hearing right now from your word? And I ask you as we work through it, check everything I'm saying according to the text. Anything I say that's consistent with the text, love it and cling to it. If it's not, feel free to put it aside. I will not in any way be offended. The account that we focus our attention on this morning from Luke 23 is taken from the section of Luke that deals with the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. The record captures limited yet dense reflections of three dying men, two thieves and the Son of God. Each of them has something to say that tells us truth about them and about their relationship to Jesus Christ. Now the the, the focus of the account, if you read through from verse 32, you will find two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be crucified. Verse 33, Jesus was crucified there along with criminals. Verse 35, or I'm sorry, verse 39, it says one of the criminals. So what you find in this text is an emphasis on the nature of fallen humanity. Okay, and that's brought to light or brought into emphasis by focusing on these two characters that are present on the day 
that Jesus Christ is crucified. One other note is this. You will find that these two men in the text are nameless. Okay, there's a reason for that. I'm not supposed to focus on these men as individuals with names. They are exemplars, illustrations of how we tend to respond to God in two significantly different yet important ways. Okay, so as we work through it, I want you to think of it not in terms of uh, today I'm going to gain more information about Christ, but today I am going to gain a better understanding of where I stand with God because that is what matters most. So let's move our way into the text. We'll look at the first thief, second thief, and then we'll look at Jesus. Would you look at me at verse 39, and I'll read for you. The text says, One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And the assumption we can make from the text is that he said many other similar things. Okay, because the idea in the original text is that he kept pummeling Jesus with accusation, critique, vitriol, violence. He just unleashed on him in his moment of death. I would say that the first thief makes a tragic mistake. He rejects Jesus. Now, there may be reasons for why. As you read through the text, you find that the rulers of the Jews are saying to him, if you're the Messiah, come down, save yourself. Soldiers, are you the king of the Jews? Rescue yourself. What good is a king hanging on a cross? That's the, kind of the, the theme. And this thief kind of gets caught up by, perhaps in the wave of it. But what their words do is bring clear expression to his heart. And so as he looks at Christ, he does a simple calculus, if you will. His calculus is something like this. Chosen ones, messiahs, don't hang on crosses. A king on a cross is a sign of weakness, disgrace, defeat. It makes no sense. And I would say I agree with that from an only human perspective. What good is a dying king? You see, that's the perspective this man has. In fact, he could reflect on the Old Testament. It's almost certain that these two thieves are Jews who have practiced insurrection against Rome. He could reflect on the fact from, I believe it is the book of Leviticus, cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. There's no glory, there's no good that comes out of a cross. That was the the common mindset. It was a place where the undesirables were done away with. What did this man want? Here's what he wanted. He wanted a king who could get him off the cross. So when he cries out to Jesus in accusation, what does he say? If you're the king, if you're the Messiah, get us down from here. Bow before me. Meet my needs. Deliver me. Set me free. He wanted a conditional relationship in which the king meets his needs. I believe that his aim is to domesticate Jesus, to have Jesus serve his needs because he doesn't realize that Jesus actually is serving his needs on the cross. But because he's so caught up in his immediate desires and personal affections, he can't see Jesus clearly. That happens often to us. This man does not want a king. I'm going to use an illustration. I think this man wants a genie. He wants an Aladdin. Someone who will show up, bow before him, how can I help you? Folks, here's what I want you to understand. Jesus is not a genie. 
He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. This man aims to domesticate Christ, to tame him, to get what he can get from him because he doesn't realize how essential and necessary the cross work of Christ, in fact, is. So he proclaims his own desires and tragically mistakes in his response to Christ not seeing his real need. Maybe you're here today and you can resonate with the frustration of this thief. I get it. I get it. If I was him and I didn't have an understanding of what Christ was accomplishing, I would probably beg the same thing. I'm not better than him. But the text, in fact, does critique him. Frustrated with God, not getting what he wants, dying after attempting to rescue Israel. He allows his frustration to justify his resistance to God. If God won't get him out of his difficult circumstance or you out of yours, if he won't get you out of your financial struggle, if he won't save your mate from cancer, if he won't fix your marriage, I want nothing to do with him. I think most of us can resonate with that kind of feeling, probably, at some time along the way in our Christian experience. Or maybe you can remember before you trusted Christ and how your heart wanted a God who would meet your needs. But I would argue this morning that that is a dangerous way to treat a king. Many turn to God in a time of crisis or in a season of felt need, not because they want him to rule their lives. I want to tell you something this morning. The essence of my sinfulness is I say, God, I want life on my terms, and I want a God who meets me where I am in the way that I want to be met. And if you're not the God that I desire, away with you. That's the tragic mistake. While the Son of God is dying for this man's sin, he resists, rebukes, ridicules, and ultimately rejects the Son of God. He saw God as a means to his ends, but God and his glory must be the aim and end of everything that we as his children do. So thief one, the tragic mistake, he rejects the Son of God. Thief two makes the hardest admission. I want you to see how fundamentally different this man's response is to that of the other thief. So thief one, I don't want anything to do with king. to do with the king who can't get me off this cross and give me what I want. The second man was playing the same song earlier on. If you go back to Matthew 27, here's what you're going to find. It says both of the thieves were heaping insults on Christ. And what were they doing? They were simply joining in with the crowd, the multitude, the religious leaders, and the soldiers. They were just saying what everybody else was saying. But for the second thief, who makes the hardest admission, something changes. A flip or a switch flips. And suddenly eyes that are blind to the true nature of Christ begin to open. There is an awakening in his heart. And perhaps as you think as a Christian, back on when you first began to hear the good news of Christ, how God began to transform your vision. How you began to see yourself truly as a rebel against God in need of a Savior like Jesus. And that's what happens in this text. Notice in verse 40, his response to the other thief. It says, the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence, meaning you're getting what your sins deserve. Is there no sense of awe before God? Is there no sense as you move toward death of guilt and responsibility and accountability and judgment? Nothing? This thief begins to feel the weight of his own sin. 
I want you to notice how he couches this. The first thing he does is he confesses his simple guilt. He says, don't you fear God. We are under the same sentence, meaning all three of us are dying. But we, verse 41, are punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserve. We can't say we've been righteous. We can't say we have been good. We cannot say we've been moral, religiously upstanding. We have fallen short. And on this cross, we are getting exactly what we deserve. His confession. We're rebels. And I want to suggest to you this morning that in this analysis of Jesus, you can detect a repentant heart that is turning from this man's old way of life. And there's a turn towards Jesus that entails a totally different view and a totally different perspective of Jesus. One has no sense of guilt, no shame. This man moves from insult to confession. Now, can I ask you a question this morning? Do you think that thief number two would like to get off the cross? What do you think? I think the answer is easy. He definitely would. But he would rather come to know Christ as who he truly is, a Savior and Redeemer, than to find an increase in his physical life. His attention has shifted from what? From temporal benefit like the other thief to a view of eternity before a holy God. And so when he, when he speaks to him, he says, don't you fear God? No, like seriously, no sense of guilt, of responsibility, of obligation before God. We're dying and we will stand before the king of the universe. So what's his response? His response is no more demand and no more cynicism. Instead, he comes to trust Christ. Notice what he says in verse 41. We are getting what our deeds deserve, a just consequence. But this man has done nothing wrong. And folks, here's the, the, the truth that I think this man begins to comprehend. He's heard from, and I'll just list these for you, from Judas, right? The innocence of Christ. Judas went back into the temple, flew the money of betrayal through the temple and cried out to the religious leaders, I betrayed innocent blood. This man heard Pilate speak of Christ saying, I find no fault in him. Herod declares him innocence. On the cross, this criminal, this thief, declares Jesus to be free from sin. And at the end of the text, the Roman centurion says what? Surely this man was not a criminal. He was, in fact, the everlasting son of God. So what happens why is it that suddenly there is this dramatic shift, this change of attitude from controlling God, from controlling Jesus, getting what I want out of him, to confessing and trusting? I think the answer is that he saw that Jesus Christ was dying in his place. He gained an appreciation of what we call the doctrine of substitution. Okay, The fact that on the cross... Jesus stands in the place of criminals, though innocent, to bear the judgment of God that we deserve. That's what he sees, and it, it puts him back on his heels. It alters his perspective and completely changes him from speaking vitriol and violence to confessing and wanting saving grace that day. It's a beautiful picture, a beautiful transition. You know, Luke 22, verse 37, if you were just to flip back a chapter, here's what it says. It says, he, Jesus, 
was numbered with transgressors, which literally means, if you go back to Isaiah 53, it means he was counted as, treated as a criminal, as a sinner. That's what's happening on the cross. The perfect sinless Son of God stands in the place of guilty sinners, bears the consequence of their sin for them so that they no longer have to. That is glorious truth. And I imagine what's, what's coursing through this thief's mind as he looks at Christ and he gains a completely different perspective that in his death, it, it's not absurd, it's not wasted, it's meaningful and gracious on the part of God. He sees the in-my-placeness of Christ's death. In the ancient world, uh, in the time of, of the kings and monarchies, uh, there was a term that was spun about in the royal family, especially in the realm of education and the tutelage of the next generation of monarchs. The word was whipping boy. How many of you have heard that term? Right? You've heard that, right? It's typically we think of someone who's bullied, right? That's kind of how we translate it today. But a whipping boy in the ancient world was a, a very sad picture. Okay, if you were born into a royal family, there was the perception that you were akin to divinity. You had special rights and privileges. And so if a young prince was in the process of training and education to prepare him for royalty and he made a misstep or rebelled, it was deemed inappropriate to punish that prince. It would be an offense to the throne to punish him. So sadly, this is what happened. The whipping boy was typically a friend of the prince. And because the prince needed to learn that decisions have consequence, that bad things result in bad, bring bad results, he needed to know that. What happened in antiquity was that that boy would receive the whipping that the prince deserved so that justice was satisfied. So that the punishment needed was meted out on someone who stood in his place. It's, I understand it's absurd, but it's what happened. It's sad, but it is a powerful picture of what happens at the cross. Christ hangs on my cross. That's the message of the gospel. He stands in my place, takes the punishment that I deserve so that I can be forgiven because justice has, in fact, been served. Does that make sense? Meaning there is a right consequence and penalty for sin. That consequence for my sin is borne by someone else. Justice is met before God, and I receive forgiveness and a place with God. That is the power and glory of the gospel. The way Peter says it in 1 Peter 3.18 is this. He says Christ died, and listen to this, for our sins, that is, for the uh, advantage of and to the benefit of someone else, Christ died. And here's what the text says. The just for the unjust. The sinless Christ for the sinful Tim Hoff that he might bring us to God. Why? Because in my sinfulness, I don't have a standing with a holy God. I deserve judgment. I deserve the cross. I deserve hell. But on the cross, Christ stands in our place. This is why Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve humanity by giving his life as a ransom, a freedom price for many. That's the gospel in a nutshell. 
Isaiah 53 verses 4 to 5 captured this theme of substitution in a way that I think is absolutely remarkable. And I'm going to confess to you something this morning. I have studied the Word of God for a long time. I've been preaching for now almost 30 years. And I read this text last night, and you know how you kind of get an understanding of a text? And you go back and read it later and say, oh my God, I didn't, I didn't see that clearly. Here's the text, and it, it gives you the contrast of two different views of Jesus like we have with the thieves. Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely he took up our infirmities. The idea is that he did that in our place. He stood in my place, took my infirmities. He carried our sorrows, yet we considered or concluded that he was being stricken by God and afflicted. View of thief number one, right? He must have done something wrong. That's why he's suffering. That is exactly what the first thief is thinking. A king who hangs on a cross has to be there for a reason. And I want nothing to do with him. We esteemed him smitten by God and afflicted. But here's what the, what the Isaiah does. He says, but, and he sets up a contrast. All right, he, we esteemed him smitten by God and afflicted, rejected. But he was pierced for our transgressions. You see the connection to the second thief? The thief looks at Jesus and says, he's done nothing wrong. He's dying in our place for our sins. And that is that beautiful doctrine, if you will, or truth of substitution, of the in-my-placeness of Christ's death. And I would argue this with you this morning. Until you see clearly that Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, hung in the place of sinners on Calvary's cross, that work of the cross will make no sense to you. You will be saying, to what end? Why would God do that? Because I don't tend to notice and understand the seriousness of my sin. Religion, performance, and rule-keeping offer no hope to sinful people, let alone dying people. This man hanging on the cross, when he saw his sinfulness, here's what he knew. I'm at the 11th hour and the 59th minute. I cannot get off this cross and offer performance to God. I cannot begin to go to church. I cannot practice sacraments. I cannot do religious rituals. I am in the dying moment of my life. And what does he do? He cries out to God and he says, Lord, I cast myself on your mercy. I deserve the cross I'm dying on. But you don't deserve the one you're dying on. Here's what he says. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. Remember this broken, repentant sinner. Save me. Don't let me perish. Now, what is implied in that? What's implied is that he sees life for Jesus beyond the cross. That's eyes of faith, let me tell you. And he sees a hope emerging in Jesus for a rebel who is dying, who can offer nothing to God, no merit of his own. Only simple trust and belief. Folks, I want to tell you something. That is the most glorious breaking that you can experience. When God allows you to see that you deserve to be on the cross that Jesus bore, and yet he stood in your place because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to do what? To stand in my place, to take the judgment I deserved, to bear all the wrath of God that was headed in my direction, and to offer me an amazing and glorious forgiveness. This cry, remember me, I would say is a bold 
and audacious, hopeful, casting on mercy. Save us is demand. Forgive us is the cry for mercy. Do you see the difference? Two thieves, two different responses. And what we have is a cry that God hears because as we go to the next part of the text, we see the response of Jesus. Now, let me just say this to you real quickly. My experience is that most people don't sense their need for the cross of Christ because most people don't sense the seriousness of their sin. Does that make sense? And this is why you'll find, you'll start sharing Jesus with people, but you feel like you're throwing darts at a cinder block wall. There's no sense of reception. There's there's no softness. There's no sense of need. There's no brokenness yet. And what I do with people and, and I don't do this to harm people. I do this to help people see. Uh, I'll get in a conversation with someone about our sin and our need for the Savior. And most people, when you say, would you agree that you're a sinner? You know what most people's response is? I'm going to tell you this, 90% of the time. Well, they, they want to qualify what you mean by that. Okay? Like, when you say sinner, do you mean like I'm bad? Because I've never committed adultery. I've never murdered I don't steal, right? These are the kinds of things I hear from people. And here's what I say. I appreciate you being honest. But can I challenge you? Can I test you? And here's here's the way it goes. I'll say to someone, have you ever murdered someone? They'll say, well, no, I haven't. And I quote from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus said, if you've ever hated someone in your heart, check off, I'm a murderer. Okay, well, I've never cheated on my wife. What's Jesus' reply? If you've never looked at a woman to lust, you're an adulterer. Can I take this more personal? Have you ever cut your hours at work? Have you ever gotten paid for time you didn't put in? So now you're getting personal. Okay, my answer is, Yeah. Yeah. You know what that makes me? Makes me a thief. And here's what happens. I can't see my need of Jesus until I see that I'm a sinner in need of saving grace. Because when, when I minimize my sin, I have no sense of guilt. I have no need for a crucified Messiah. And for the first thief, that's exactly where he was. He couldn't see his personal need. He was blinded by seeing a Christ who would not bow before him and meet his needs. And so there is no confession. But for the second thief, there is this simple, Lord, remember me, a brokenness, because he sees that Christ in his place, because of love, is bearing the consequence of his sin. And he cries out to Christ. Here's the question. What was the response of Jesus? How does Jesus on the cross respond to a rebel who in the last hour, in the 59th minute, wants help? How does he respond? He doesn't respond like I would respond. He is full of grace and truth. He says to him, truly, truly, amen and amen. And the question is, why does he proceed the promise with emphasis? Why does he proceed the statement of promise with with a very full and robust statement? Why does he do it? One writer said it this way. He said, no one in the Bible gets more explicit assurance of salvation than the thief on the cross because no one in the Bible is less deserving of God's grace than the thief on the cross. 
Does that make sense? He gets the most explicit promise of grace and hope for salvation. Because he is the one who most desperately needs it on that day. And so Jesus gives him a promise in the emphatic tone, today, with me in paradise. Truly, truly. I also want you to notice that the blessing that comes to this man from Jesus does not wait for an appropriate response and performance from him. Jesus says to him, in light of your confession and repentance, acknowledging my cross work, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, in the immediate, folks, that's what happens when you come to Christ saying, Lord, I am a sinner. I believe that you died on the cross in my place, and I am trusting your substitutionary work as my hope for salvation and heaven. And everything changes. Today, a promise of life beyond the cross, a glimmer of resurrection hope, which is what we celebrate today. At the time of salvation, Christ's judgment is averted, And his presence and power flow and move in your direction. That is the wow factor of the gospel. Not when I start to perform and do religious things and rituals and sacraments. Not then. But when I come to Christ, a self-admitted, a self-confessed sinner, grace begins to move in my direction. I don't deserve it. It comes as a gift. But I am so grateful that that is the truth of the gospel. Jesus says to him, Today you will be with me. Now folks, there's a difference between wanting Jesus to do things for you than wanting Jesus to be with you. This text promises to this man a relationship with God himself. Not a God who comes to meet your needs, get you out of all your problems, but a God who comes near and wants to relate with you personally. And he takes it a step further, and he harks back to an Old Testament theme. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise means something like the garden of the gods. Okay, that's what paradise means in the original literature. Kings would build beautiful gardens in honor of themselves. And if you did something extraordinary that, that merited the favor of the king, you would be given a pass that would let you come into the king's garden. You could, as a result of your effort, your merit, your goodness, your protection of the king, your love for the king, you would be invited into his garden. And there, presumably, you would enjoy fellowship with him, his presence. It wasn't just about the garden. It was that I'm in with the king. That's the picture. Does Does anything go off in your mind when you think about that? Paradise is the garden of kings. Here's where my mind ran. Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve initiate the first sin, they reject God's rightful rule, and they experience banishment from the garden of God. That intimate Fellowship with God is broken by sin and humanity is left longing for something that will satisfy. What do we do? We take things, we take relationships, we take looks, we take passions, we take appetites. We cram them into our lives trying to find a reason to live. What Jesus offers to this man in his last moment is a true reason to live. At the time of your death, my friend. Because of grace alone, faith alone, through the blood of Christ alone, you will be with me 
in paradise. I, I, when you go back to the Garden of Eden, you find that sin breaks this beautiful picture of fellowship with God. And it's fascinating to me that on the cross of Christ, this garden theme comes up again. And in his death and resurrection, forgiving us and changing us, Jesus is making a way for you and I to come back into the garden of God where we enjoy relationship with him. Folks, ultimately, what this man requested was a changed life and a relationship with Jesus. And what he got through God's grace was a new and glorious and beautiful relationship. Charles Spurgeon summarized this text by saying this. He said, surely if there is anything but faith needed to make us fit to enter the garden of God, the, ne- the thief must stay here a little longer. The idea is a little more performance, a little more merit, a little more deserving. But no. He is in the morning in the state of sin, at noon in the state of grace, and by sunset, he is in the state of glory with Christ. I don't know about you, but that makes me to say to God, thank you for your undeserved, unlimited, unmerited favor. Thank you that salvation, rescue from my sin, and restoration to a relationship with you is not dependent upon my good works because I am a moral failure who found a glorious Savior. Folks, that's our story. That's this thief's story. You see, if you read this story of two thieves on a cross and you think, wow, they're really, they were tough guys. Right? They were really bad dudes who got what they deserved. And you feel a little sympathy. But Jesus enters into the story of the three, of the two thieves, and one's heart is transformed. One's heart is inclined to want to know God, to want to be forgiven and released from the consequence of his sin. And his eternal destiny in this moment is completely altered. Now, this morning, you might say to yourself, well, Pastor, I don't know. I think that stuff's a little too good to be true. Hope that deep grace, that amazing, is attractive, but it's not realistic. I'm going to argue something for you this morning. I'm going to argue that even if you don't believe it's true, you wish it was. Because you know the brokenness in your own heart. You know the weight of guilt, the weight of moral failure the brokenness in your relationships that you can't fix. You'd like to fix it, but you can't. Can't atone for past sin. Why? I've got today to live. I've got to be good today. And then I would say to you, how good? How good to atone for your sin? Ever good enough? I think the answer from the thief on the cross is no. Here's what I think is happening in this text. I think God, under the inspiration of Spirit, records this story so that you and I can see there are two responses to the grace of Christ. One says, live my life like I want to. I don't care. And one sees his sin. And he cries out to Jesus. And he says, Lord, I see you've done nothing wrong. I see you dying in my place. When you come in your kingdom, I'm trusting you. 
remember this moment when my heart broke and grace emerged and you forgave and I was rescued from my rebellion. Folks, God wants to do that for you today if you've never trusted Christ. Why did he save the thief on the cross? And why did he record the story? There are many, John 20, 21, I read it to you earlier. Jesus did many things, but these are written that you might believe. These are written to change your heart. Why the thief on the cross? I think the answer is very simple. You find this as you read through the Gospels. Jesus is always reaching to the extremes. I mean, the real extremes. It's likely that this guy was simply a pistol-whipping robber who abused people to advance his cause of sedition against Rome. That's who he was. Everything in his life was calculated to maximize uh, punishment and anger against people. It's what he did. And yet on the cross, he comes to realize that he is a sinner. And the grace of God reaches out and rescues him. Why him? I think the answer to that question is this. In the Gospels, Jesus is reaching to the worst of these so that no one in this room can say, I got a worse track record than him. Does that make sense? What it also does is it gives me permission to be honest with God about who I really am. You know what most sinners do? They hide from God. They try to hide from the sin by minimizing it, comparing it to others. You know, thank God for the in-laws because they're really, they're really sinful. Thank God for my neighbor. You know, when I compare myself to him, I'm not that bad. Until God breaks your heart and you see yourself deserving of the cross, Jesus will not make any sense to you. The reason he reaches to the extreme of the thief is to say to every person sitting in this room this morning, if you've never trusted Christ, through the gospel, there's hope for you. And the thief stands there to say, he saved me. He'll save you. He died for me. He died for you. He offered me hope. He'll give you hope. He'll rescue you from your circumstance. He'll save you and give you life with him forever. So, okay, so let me just say this real quick and we'll close. So you, you hear this story of God's grace and you say to yourself, I want it to be true. I'm struggling. Okay? I'm struggling. I, I would love to believe that's true and have God change and alter my life. Can I remind you of something? This thought of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ to the disciples was absurd. Okay? To them it was absurd. Peter said, Jesus, over my dead body will I let you go to a cross and die even though you're promising resurrection. I won't stand for it. They struggled when he spoke of the cross promising a resurrection on the third day. They wrestled with what a dead Messiah would mean to the cause that they had committed themselves to. So they opposed the cross of Christ to a man. But a turning point follows the cross, doesn't it? Women go to the grave to anoint a body for burial, to prepare it for its final resting place. And when they get there, what do they find? They find an empty grave. They run back to town. They find Peter and the other disciples, the lead apostle and the others, and they say to them, the body's not there. Peter rushes to the grave with a few others. And the pronouncement from the angels is this. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Answer, because we're having a hard time believing the resurrection. And they said, and we'll come and see. 
And then Jesus reveals himself to the disciples on numerous occasions. Hope begins to rise that the message of the gospel is true because the Savior of the world, though crucified, is risen again. Do you see? So here's what one writer said. He said, on the cross, Jesus says, right, it is done. Sin is paid for. Hope for forgiveness and change is present through the work of Christ. The resurrection is the Father's amen to the Son's proclamation. It is done. Do you see? So the purpose of the resurrection and its record is to show us that Jesus is the King of glory who can remember the thief on the cross because he will be there to greet him. That's glorious truth. Let that begin to settle into your heart and change you. You may say this morning, is there hope for me to be forgiven, to change? Perhaps perhaps your life has been difficult, many struggles. This man's story in God's story and resurrection power say yes, there's hope for you. Folks, I am never reluctant to share the gospel of God's grace. You know why? Because I never believe I will run into someone worse than this thief. And when someone thinks that they're beyond saving grace because of how deep their sin is, I take them to this story every time. And I say to them, tell me what Christ required of this man. What righteous acts, what transformation, what reformation, what freedom, what change did he require for this man to gain access to heaven? And the answer is, crickets. Nothing. Nothing. He offered to him the hope of eternal life through his cross work. Believer, we come by grace and we go by grace. We come together not to applaud each other, but to make much of our risen and exalted Savior. That's our aim today is to realize that there is a Savior who died for sinners on Calvary's cross who will rescue and transform your life forever. We are a church full of redeemed sinners. This man will forever be the thief on the cross, redeemed in the final hour, a deathbed conversion by the grace and glory of God, forever altered. We come together not to applaud each other and our works but to make much of our risen and exalted Savior. We come to be reminded of God's grace because we don't have it together. And maybe you're here this morning saying, you know what, my heart is a train wreck. It's a mess emotionally. It's full of anger and vitriol. I feel like thief number one. I have good news for you. You're still alive. And there's still hope. And there's time for change. If you would come to Jesus and say, Jesus, all my sin fell on you. You bore the consequence. You bore the wrath of God that was headed in my direction. You stepped in, became the whipping boy, took what I justly deserve so that I could be a child of the king. Maybe today where you sit, you just need to bow your head and say, oh, God, help me. Forgive me for trying to Get to heaven by my merit. Forgive me for minimizing my sinfulness because of that, the cross has been obscured from view for me. It has not been clear. Today you show me my sin. And because I see my sin, I see my need for Christ clearly. God, save me. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. No merit of my own. Tis mine but to believe.
If you've never trusted him, I beg of you to do that. And if you know him, I want you today to gain a heart to celebrate, to glory in a crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. He is for you. Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for the truth of the cross that becomes so clear through the eyes of this thief that sees Christ dying not for his own sin, but for his personally. And Father, my, my simple request this morning is that you, God, would by a miracle of the work of your Spirit, open eyes today to see a need for Christ. And Father, for every heart that you draw and that you call to and that you, you, you move upon today, I pray that the response will be, Lord, save me. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. This sinner... Redeemed by grace, please. Let this be our confession. And for all of us who know him, let, let joy rise from our hearts to the glory of Christ. Father, bless as we close with this song. Glorify Christ and save, I pray, in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.